I'm Hans and Eve, and I beat uh, the often path by starting a company called Carbion to take CO2 back from the atmosphere and undo the climate change. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories, often with an eco-friendly slant to help us think outside the box in our lives and careers. Well, my guest today is Hans Deneva, and he's tackling an unsolvable problem, capturing CO2 from the air. Today, we discuss how going against conventional wisdom and the advice of his peers and the scientific community has led him to a breakthrough technology that could help us all pull carbon from the air and even maybe reverse climate change at scale. But it's no pipe dream. He's already received the prestigious XPRIZE Milestone Award, that's from Elon Musk, with his company Carbion, and his work towards helping us achieve not just zero emissions, but actually negative emissions, couldn't be more important to our species as a whole. So I can't wait for you to meet Hans Deneva right now of Carbion. Well, welcome to the show, Hans, and I have a very special thing for you to say. First of all, can we all agree, uh, Eindhoven de Gexte? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, Eindhoven is a place where uh, where we work, and um, yeah, it's a great place. It is a great place. I actually lived there for five years. I don't know if you knew that about me. I lived in Eindhoven specifically for an extended period of time. Okay, no, I didn't know that. Um, so, okay, I don't need to tell you then all about Eindhoven. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, it's a, me it's a, a great long, long place. Time. It's a. At, at the time I was there, it was named the smartest region. Uh, it, you are a part of the Brainport region, of course. Um, they got a lot smarter after I left, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. No, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's still a very smart uh, region. And um, yeah, I mean, it attracts a lot of people from all over the world, I should say, yeah? also from the US, because you've been there, obviously. And um, I think it's an inspiring place. Yeah. It really is. It's very modern. A lot of great things happening there. There's the Stripe S region, a lot of uh, focus on small businesses. They make it very easy for startups and companies to get started and to operate. It's a very f a good environment to have big ideas, I think. And those ideas are often celebrated and there's a lot of avenues to get your ideas out there. That yeah. was my experience. Oh, um, how do you feel? So maybe tell us a little bit about your background. So what is your company doing and why? And how did you get on this path? And so the company, we're developing um, a machine that can um, extract CO2 from the atmosphere uh, and do it at gigaton scale. So really to undo climate change, let's say, to undo what we've been doing wrong for the past 150 years. <laughs> and of course, we've been emitting uh, a huge amount of CO2 and we're experiencing the consequences right now. Um, and actually, we uh, we have the plan to uh, to undo that. So to develop a technology that allows to um, yeah to reduce the atmospheric concentrations of uh, of CO two. And it's a kind of a daunting plan because I, I've I've met much more people that declared me completely crazy uh, of wanting to do it. Um, and I must say that. I'm a scientist myself, and uh, but most scientists um, actually uh, are convinced that it's impossible to do. Um, I, I've been uh, thinking about this idea for a long time, and um, people have literally told me, okay, give it a try, but you know what? It will never work. 
Um, so people, uh, scientific people, were really convinced, and the whole scientific community actually, and, and that's also the link, I think, to this program, that um, many people were afraid to start thinking and working on this topic uh, because they were afraid that they would be laughed at by the so-called serious scientific community because there was this kind of um, yeah, common knowledge, let's say, um, among serious scientists that uh, we should never work on, on or we should never even try to extract CO2 from the atmosphere because it will always be uh, taking too much energy, much more energy than we could ever uh, generate, let's say. Um, it would cost uh, too much material, it would be too costly, it would never be economic, so etc. etc. There were always arguments why the serious scientific community thought that it was not worth investigating, and that's really a pity because I think um, if more people would have uh, left the beaten path before on this topic, uh, maybe we would have been further. Uh, in, in developing technology because right now, 2022, I think many people that say 10 years ago or 20 years ago said that it was not possible to do, today they see that with technology, uh, as technology advances, and they think that, okay, maybe we were wrong and maybe it is possible. It's not yet proven, but what, what, it, what the message is that sometimes we need to, um, yeah, leave the, 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 the beaten path more often and, and do some crazy stuff. Well, that's a great message. And one of the phrases that you have on your website is irrational optimism. You say, I wouldn't have achieved at this without irrational optimism. There is that debate, isn't there, between what is optimism and what is irrational. Do you feel at this point that it is irrational as an illogical to do this? Or do you think that there is a chance of this being a viable method based on what you know now? There is truly uh, a chance for this viable uh, method. In that sense, it's not irrational. But if you look at the path that we followed, so where we started three years ago, uh, back then, um, it was pretty irrational to believe that we could actually do that. Um, in a way, when we did the first experiments, um, things looked good. Um, and I was so enthusiastic that I wanted to continue on that track. Uh, about one year later, it turned out that none of these experiments were true. So uh, we, we started the, the, the company Carbion based on a kind of uh, false uh, positive result. And in that sense, of course, looking back now to the moment that I decided to start Carbion, it was pretty irrational because we hadn't checked on the measurements, which turned out to be wrong afterwards. So starting a company and not double checking your measurements first, that was a pretty irrational thing to do. Um, but okay, we got lucky. Um, I mean, despite the fact that these initial measurements were wrong, we finally proved them. Uh, we did other measurements and we found another way of proving this idea. But sometimes you need to do things without having double-checked or triple-checked uh, things. And in that way, uh, it was a little bit irrational because a rational person would say, no, 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 before I quit my job, I'm going to double-check and triple check whether these results are okay and whether people will be willing to pay for it and all of these things. I checked none of these things because there was no time. I had to take a decision 
And I had to say, okay, we need to decide with little information. We had little technical information. We had no information about the market. So we, we, we had very little to, um, to take. Uh, I mean, we had no certainties, right? And, and that's, that's what it is in life. Uh, I mean, you always need to take a decision and you don't know if you take uh, the left turn or the right turn. Um, I mean, I could, have, I could have stayed at the institute where I was working. I was working for a research institute. I had a nice job. I had, a, a, um, I had everything I wanted, if you want, and I could stay there till I was retired. And then nobody would, would push me out there. Uh, so that was kind of the certainty. But then I also knew that I could not do this dream that we're doing right now with Carbion. I could not actually develop this technology because they didn't see any value in it. And they said it was impossible to do and they wouldn't then spend any money on it. So the alternative was to go for the uncertainty. Um, and the, the, the fact that um, I had to quit my job. I didn't know how things would, would work out. I wasn't sure about the technology. So it was full of uncertainties. And um, that's, that's always a difficult moment to decide upon. Eh? Um, but then I thought, like, if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it my whole life. So I choose for the uncertain route, uh, following my dream, uh, leaving the beaten path, let's say, leaving the certain path and uh, trying to see what's out there in the desert. And um, of course, you need to have a, a hinge. You need to have some idea what you're looking for. So you're not just going out in the desert uh, um, uh, based on, on good luck. Uh, we had some idea, of course, what we were looking for. But still, uh, when you're leaving uh, the beaten path, it's like, okay, nobody has digged there. Uh, we think we can find something there. And that takes some guts, of course. But it's also part of the adventure. And, and that's really nice about it. That's really a beautiful sentiment. And that is, of course, what this show is all about. And I think you've touched on a couple points of people who think that they know things. And I think there are two kinds of people who think that they know things. There are people who just deny climate change. They say it doesn't exist or it's not man-made. It's a normal process that the earth goes through every so many thousands of years. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing we can do about it. There are a lot of people who think that they know that I believe that they're wrong. I think most intelligent people know that they're wrong or believe that. But then you have another category of, like you said, the scientists, the serious scientific community, who is quite sure that they know that it is a man-made problem, but they also know that it can't be solved, so why even try? Both of those are dangerous because both of those lead to the thought of inactivity, inaction, why bother, let's just not do anything at all, right? Yeah, it's it's both are dangerous, as you say. Uh, the, the also scientists that um, do not even try to um, uh, to figure out certain technologies like uh, capturing CO two from the atmosphere. Um, Klaus Lackner, um, U.S. Uh, professor, he was the first actually to start publishing about the fact that it should be feasible. Um, but he was the only one. Uh, this was twenty years ago. And he wrote these articles that he said, okay, everybody says it can't be done, but I think it can be done. And this is the reason why I think it can be done. But he was not believed. Uh, he was put aside by his colleagues and, and he remained the only person for a very, very long time. Uh, so yeah, that's how scientific community also works. And there are too many 
beaten paths and people are afraid to leave those beaten paths. If you're working on a PhD, uh, I see people choosing too many safe topics. Uh, topics that already uh, thousands of people have worked upon and then they add uh, a small part to that. So that's safe eh, because you, you remain on the, uh, let's say, in, in what is um, acknowledged by the scientific community as a relevant domain of research. But as soon as you do something which is completely uh, different that nobody has yet done before or nobody has even published about before, nobody dares that. I mean, and also if, if you're working on a PhD and, and that's what you propose, you will not find uh, easily a promoter that will support you on that. And I think that's really, uh, that's really a pity. The scientific community stays too much within what they believe themselves to be relevant domains. Um, and fail sometimes to start exploring something completely different. And uh, it's, it's a rare event that, that people start to research from completely new and undiscovered uh, domains. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful part of the human experience and why I love technology so much in general, because there's a subset of people who study history at length and they have tons of history books and they're, they're able to distill what humans have done and geopolitics and all of these things. And from that, they create some kind of conclusion about what the next 10 or 15 years might be. But every time I see that kind of thinking, it always strikes me as, when you see a movie from 1997 that predicted the future, or even farther back, Star Trek from decades before that that predicted the future, it's always more of a representation of that time period than it is of the future. The Fifth Element came out in 1997. That's more like what 1997 looked like than what the actual future will be. So when people try to predict the future in that way, I think we almost always get it wrong as a species because we can't imagine how things will change. We say, oh, there'll be flying cars and there'll be a hundred billion people on earth, but you still have a phone that's connected to your apartment. Yeah. You don't have a computer and we, we can't predict. And the most exciting thing about technology is how these breakthroughs can completely change our entire society, our entire concept of what's possible in a very, very, very short time. The iPhone comes out and within a few years, the old Nokias are unimaginably old and dated and stupid. But who knew that three years before the iPhone came out in the general public? Nobody. Who could have guessed that? So I think it is important to take that leap and to remember that part of science is exploration. And part of exploration is going after things that are by definition unknown, that you don't know whether it will be a success or not. Yeah, absolutely. And um, of course, uh, Apple and, and Steve Jobs, I mean, he had a very good sense of um, what might work. I mean, he was really great in thinking out of the box and, and coming with uh, innovative uh, products and, and, and solutions. And, and of course, not everybody is, is Steve Jobs, but still, um, I, I would encourage um, much more people also in the scientific community um, to think more out of the box and, and not just to, um, to add uh, another paper on top of the 1000 papers on a specific topic. Um, I think if, if uh, especially also young researchers, but I mean, age doesn't matter, but in a way, why not uh, start something new? do something that nobody has done before. Of course, you need to 
uh, have some idea why you want to do it, but um, don't be scared to start something new. Uh, that's, that's a message that I will continue to repeat wherever I go to uh, people that want to go into research and science. Uh, if you have the chance to do it, um, if, if the environment allows it, if, you're, if you can do it at the university or wherever you are, um, take the chance to think out of the box and, to, and do some, some, something crazy. It's absolutely um, worth uh, doing that. Um, and and um, yeah, don't look for safe solutions or uh, safe domains to, uh, to, to work at. I mean, direct air capture is a perfect example. Um, it, it was, um, uh, as, as we discussed, um, considered to be a, a no-go zone. And it's because some people started to go there that they started to discover and wonder, like, why is this a no-go zone? There are, eh, there are very nice things to do here, and, and Carbon proves it, but some other companies prove it. Um, if you look long enough, uh, this is definitely uh, an, an area that has to be researched and that can really have a tremendous uh, impact. So I hope we can prove all the disbelievers wrong. Um, and that's also a part, of course, of the motivation. Um, I, I'm, I'm not shy about it, that the fact that so many people told me that it wouldn't work, of course, um, made me um, more determined than ever to try and prove their, uh, uh, that they were wrong about that. But the future will tell. Um, uh, irrational optimism uh, is what keeps me going. Um, but so far, we've not met any showstoppers. Uh, I mean, if we would really meet a showstopper, I would also, I think, um, of course, not continue uh, trying to do this. But as long as I don't find anything that is uh, a showstopper, I will just continue digging until we find the treasure that we all need. That's a great philosophy. And you mentioned wandering out in the desert, but you had some hints. So let's talk about the why and the how. Why did you decide to not having all the information go after this problem? And how did you get started day one when you took the leap? So I, I, I've been following the domain already for the past 10 to 15 years. Um, working as an engineer and a scientist on energy transition, I was always, um, I was very much interested in the technology to uh, turn renewable electricity into renewable fuels. Um, and somehow with electricity uh, as the prime source of, of energy through solar panels and through wind turbines, um, uh, electricity is, is, a, is uh, not easy to store. Uh, we can do it in batteries, but that only works to a certain extent. And I was actually, um, on a Christmas lecture, hearing about the possibility that you can turn, transform electricity into fuels like hydrogen, but also the combination of hydrogen and carbon into hydrocarbons. And in a way, you can make jet fuel uh, based on electricity. Uh, so chemically, the same thing as the fossil jet fuel, you can make it from electricity based on hydrogen and based on, on carbon. And that source of carbon had to be a renewable source, so it had to come from air, which is then uh, CO2. That was actually the trigger for me 10 years ago to start thinking more about this. 
and I started reading everything I could. Um, and it was clear that in particular the, the, the CO2 from air was an under-investigated domain. And it never left my mind. I've, I've, I didn't start working explicitly on this domain. Uh, I've been working mainly on um, smart grids and solar panels. But it was like five years ago when working on solar panels, we had this uh, technical solution for solar panels, uh, which was uh, the ability to deposit some atomic monolayers that actually uh, made me realize that we could also use that technique to uh, revolutionize the area of uh, direct air capture, so capturing CO2 from air. But I was in a solar panel team, and of course the people from solar panels, I mean, they had no clue about CO2 and capturing it from the atmosphere, so they said, you know, maybe you're right, but we're not going to work on that. Um, but it's, it's exactly that cross-domain thinking, the fact that it had been working in different domains like hydrogen and CO2 and solar panels that allowed me to make that, that connection. Because if I had been working, let's say, on solar panels all my life, I would never have made the link, of course, with capturing CO2. Uh, and that's another advice I have for people. Make sure that you, you do different stuff. Don't stay your whole life in one technical domain. It's the cross-domain thinking that really leads to true innovation. Such a great, great, great point. So you recognize that you could capture uh, carbon in this way, and now you've created a device that's kind of funnily enough almost looks like a cigarette in a weird way, but a, but a much more modern version. It's a sort of silo with a spinning internal component. How did you land on that design to achieve this at scale? Yeah, it, it was based on some brainstorming we did eh, with, uh, with a couple of people to see uh, how, it could, uh, how it could look like. Um, we wanted to have a continuous uh, process um, and that's how we came with um, moving the sorbent in a continuous way. Um, and, and uh, well, the most elegant way seemed to be a, a rotating drum, so to, to give the sorbent uh, the shape of a rotating drum. Uh, and that's how we came to the idea of a cylinder. Uh, so indeed, it, it looks a bit like, um, yeah, like a chimney if you want, eh? but then it's a reverse chimney, so it takes in ambient air right. and uh, it will filter out the, uh, the CO2. But um, yeah, of course, the idea has taken shape over the course of, uh, of many months. So this was not, of course, a, a one-day idea like this is how it's going to look like. Um, but um, but yeah, more and more it, it took shape, and um, we still think it's a it's it's a great idea. And you mentioned fuel. What are you going to do with what you capture? Is fuel something that you're still thinking about turning this carbon into hydrocarbons, or how do you dispose of the carbon? I guess I'm really not familiar with that side of the process. So making fuels out of carbon, um, it's a kind of um, replacement of fossil fuels. So in a way, that's a technology that allows to reduce emissions because you will no longer need fossil oil and gas. Eh? You can just make it from uh, renewable electricity. So that's a way to uh, avoid uh, emitting uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. But it's not a negative emission technology, yes. This is just uh, a zero emission technology if you want. But it is a zero emission technology for which there is a huge demand. Because uh, more and more people are convinced uh, that um, 
Uh, we need, of course, to stop using fossil oil and gas, but we cannot all replace that with electrical batteries. We will need, like for aviation and some other sectors, still uh, a hydrocarbon, be it jet fuel or something else. So if we can turn electricity into uh, green electricity into green fuels, uh, you can actually serve these um, domains like aviation without the need of using uh, fossil oil and gas. So there is a business case, there are customers that want to do that, that want to pay, buy our machines, etc. So that's a good thing. Of course, um, what we also will need to do as humanity is uh, we will need to take CO2 back from the atmosphere and uh, keep it out of the atmosphere. So not make fuel with it, but storing it on the ground or doing something that it cannot come back in the atmosphere. So that's called negative emissions. And so far, nobody is willing to pay for that. Um, it will be more of a uh, UN debate probably that uh, the, the countries that are responsible for the historical emissions uh, will have to finance also uh, undoing those emissions. But right now you will not find anyone that is willing to pay for doing uh, negative uh, emissions. The only thing that people want is to compensate their own emissions, uh, so to become zero uh, carbon, uh, zero carbon neutral. Um, so there is, uh, of course, a huge uh, opportunity for becoming carbon neutral. Um, and that can be done with green fuels, uh, that can be done um, yeah, in various ways. So I think business-wise, uh, these will be, of course, our first customers. But I hope in the end that we will also get an agreement on who will finance the negative emission part so that we can um, also undo uh, climate change. That would be incredible. And one of the common criticisms that I've seen, and I think the people who are the naysayers, it's, will it ever be enough? How many of these machines do you need? It's only a tiny percentage. I've seen those types of things written in the past. How many of these machines do you think need to be out there for it to make a noticeable difference? Or how does it need to evolve to achieve the ultimate effect that we're trying to achieve? Obviously, we're talking about hundreds of millions of these machines. And that sounds like a big number, but I always tell people that we make every year 100 million vehicles, cars, trucks, new vehicles. We make them every year again, 100 million. So it's a big number, but it's, it's perfectly feasible. If you would put the same effort in making machines to capture CO2 from air and make 100 million of these machines every year, we can solve this problem very quickly. So it's, it's not a number that humanity can't manage. If we can, if we can make 100 million uh, cars every year, we can make 100 million of these uh, direct air capture machines a year, no doubt. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about the electricity required. How much electricity? I know that that's something that you're working on. You're working on making it more efficient. You're working on making the cost better all the time, I'm sure. How, uh, how much electricity do these things need to run? Do you envision them in specific locations or just scattered throughout the earth? How should they be powered? What does that look like? Most of them will be powered by... Um dedicated wind farms or solar farms, uh, in particular in those regions where you have abundant wind and, and sun conditions. Um, 
sometimes indeed the argument is used like, okay, we already, we, we have so few green electricity that uh, should we then also use it to capture CO2 from air? The fact is that um, if we have the ability um, to capture CO2 from air, automatically new wind farms and new solar farms uh, will be built that otherwise would not be built. And the, the, the same goes for the fuels. Um, people built dedicated wind farms to make uh, green fuels. And if there was no business case for green fuels, these wind farms would not be built. So it's not um, in competition, let's say, with other wind farms or other green electricity. It's, it's, uh, it's clear, of course, that we will need to build a lot of wind farms, a lot of solar farms, much more than we have today. Um, and, and if we want to have all the energy that we use today um, and, and do it based on wind and solar, obviously eh, we need 10 times more at least than, than what we have today. But hey, it's a matter of time. It's for sure feasible. Um, there is enough energy in terms of wind and solar on Earth by far. Eh? We have 10 times more than we need uh, every year. So it's a matter of building these, uh, these installations. It's for sure a feasible thing to do, even though today maybe we haven't progressed very far and we're only covering maybe five to 10%, but that's a matter of time. Uh, that's a transition that we're going uh, through. And um, energy is not so much the concern. There is plenty of energy. We just need to harvest it. Yeah, that is a feeling that, that I have always had as well. And I've said it before. I don't know if that's true because you hear again that it's such a, a big deal and we don't know how to store it and batteries and lithium ion and these rare earth metals and all of these things needed for batteries. But I do have a sneaking suspicion that there will come a radically new method for storing electricity. I have no idea what it will be, but I think there will be a new battery or storage mechanism that we see in the next 10 years or so that will change our concept of storage. But I, I don't think it's going to be having an array of cell phone batteries in a giant warehouse somewhere. I think there will be something else. But it just seems to me that you've got a planet spinning very fast. You've got a giant sun very nearby. It just seems hard to believe that energy would be a concern of our species in the next 50 years. I could be wrong about that, but it seems like that's the easiest problem to solve. Do you think that that's true or not? I think that's true. I'm, I'm not concerned at all about the lack of energy. Um, and of course, it's true that existing battery technology is, is, is still rather poor. Um, so new solutions will have to, uh, will have to come. Um, and we, we can make hydrocarbons, which are actually also a great way of storing uh, electricity. Of course, it's, it's less efficient than a battery, but again, if the argument is not that uh, we, um, I mean, we have plenty of energy, right? So we can actually afford losing some of it uh, if we find more appropriate means to store it. As storing electricity in the shape of uh, hydrocarbons uh, and turning that later again into electricity, okay, yeah, you lose about 50% of the energy going that way. Uh, whereas if you would use a battery, you only lose maybe 10%. And that's true. And that's an argument which is very often used for not using hydrocarbons to store electricity. But you can't power an airplane with a battery and you can power an airplane with hydrocarbons. 
So if you need to choose to fly green with hydrocarbons, but you need twice as much energy uh, compared to using fossil or not flying at all, I say, okay, then accept the, the, the inefficiency. There is plenty of energy anyway and turn uh, green electricity into jet fuel and fly that plane on, that plane on green fuel. And don't, don't argue uh, based on efficiency because, you know, efficiency, people drive smaller cars, big cars, you know, efficiency is not what, drive, what drives uh, things. Um, and again, the argument is not that there is not enough energy. There is plenty of energy. That's not the point. And it's pretty cheap to harvest it. You know, the, the current solar farms in, in, uh, in the best areas in the world, they are affordable producing electricity at say one and a half dollar cent per kilowatt hour and and the best wind farms can even do it for less than one dollar cent per kilowatt hour so that's nothing that's if you if you if you translate that into the cost of products or whatever is using energy that's absolutely nothing it has become so so cheap uh, that we can build as many as we need and energy and the cost of energy is totally of no concern anymore and people uh, sometimes forget that and um, so you can afford needing a little bit more energy uh, if the solution serves its purpose that's perfect yeah and that is something that we all have to wrap our heads around because we come from this fossil fuel mindset i just recently read an article about somebody who installed solar panels on their roof and those solar panels were able to meet more than 100% of their total energy demand. And they said it took a while to completely redefine how they thought about their energy usage. Because before they would be very afraid to have the air conditioner on all day or the air conditioner plus some other appliances. And then once they learned that it didn't matter, that the sun was blasting on their house anyways, they said, I can run the air conditioner all day. I can have my appliances running and I still never exceed. I can charge my car. I can charge my e-bike. All of these things are happening from this free energy that we're capturing. And this person who wrote the article described it as a personal revolution and being an incredibly freeing thing because we're stuck in these old mental models of energy is expensive and energy is finite. That makes it hard for us to see that an inefficiency, like you said, couldn't, could not matter if we have enough and it's abundant as it is, which it seems like it should be. Yeah, of course, you should not spoil energy, uh, uh, but but um, we should not be afraid of, of using energy or, or trying to, um, um, uh, for example, uh, aviation is, is a hard to abate sector. Um, so you could argue that, uh, okay, as long as we cannot fly uh, um, um, one of those airplanes on, on batteries, we, we don't fly. I think that's, anyway, from, from a societal point of view, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's, it's kind of, um, um, uh, when I look at society, when I look at people around me, I just realize like, you know, you can't revolutionize things. You cannot close down all the airports. You can't. You will get a revolution. People will be uh, uh, upset about that. You will disrupt uh, so many things. Um, so what we need to do is to make sure that 
um, of course, society as it is can continue to evolve um, uh, in, a, in a rather, let's say, evolutionary way. Um, and uh, but that of course we, we change for example the fuels from fossil fuels to green fuels um, but we keep using fuels why not if it's appropriate to use fuels use fuels it's just you know it's a chemical uh, you only need to make sure that um, it's not heating up the atmosphere uh, and if you make the chemical based on CO2 that you get from the atmosphere in the first place well it will not heat up the atmosphere so these are smart things that we can do to make sure that people can continue their lives and society can continue to evolve uh, without disrupting anything. Um, because I, I, I mean, disrupting society for the sake of uh, saving the planet, it's not going to work. If we, if, we, if we need to save the planet by means of a societal disruption, I think it's going to be a disaster. Uh, we need to save the planet, but we need to do it without disrupting society. Yeah, that is the great challenge. But I completely agree. We know enough about human motivation now to know that that's the case. People really don't like change in that regard. A lot they of They don't people, like it. There was um, a shortage about uh, gasoline in the UK a couple of months ago that uh, supply problems. I mean, people almost started to fight one another. There was <laughs> so there, we, we really need to be very careful uh, with, with, uh, with such changes. I mean, society, and we are a complex society, we are 7 billion people on this planet. You, you, very bad things can happen if, if certain disruptions uh, take place. Mm. So let's imagine a future where we do invest in this like we invest in cars we build the millions or hundreds of millions of these devices around the world attach them to solar panels or wind farms uh, what is the consequence what's that going to achieve well i think um, first of all we can go much faster to zero emission eh? if you start to produce at mass scale uh, fuels and chemicals with co2 from air we can actually um, stop digging for oil and gas much faster than we think uh, today. Um, and of course, as soon as we have reached, uh, let's say, net zero emission, we can start doing negative emissions and we can undo climate change. And this is, um, uh, this is a new technology that can change these scenarios. Right now, uh, the scenarios that the IPCC and other institutes are, are, uh, are using, uh, they do not yet take uh, full-scale direct air capture into account. The last IPCC report mentioned direct air capture, but it's typically still mentioned like, okay, it would be nice if we have it, it's not proven yet, uh, but once we've proven it, I think many, uh, many scenarios or all scenarios need to be rewritten and we need to get our act together producing hundreds of millions of these devices and then the curves can go down much faster than any curves that we're seeing in these scenarios uh, today. So our challenge is now to prove to the world and to the IPCC and to all these people making uh, transition plans that, okay, it is viable. Uh, it is proven. It's not uh, uh, 10 birds in the air, so to speak. It is something that can be used. So take it in your plans and let's execute accordingly. Uh, 
Um, so that's not taking place right now because it's still unproven. But as soon as it's proven, and I hope in one to two years from now it can be proven, uh, then I also hope that the scenario, uh, the people making these scenarios will, will change their scenarios and we can actually do uh, or act much faster than uh, any scenario today. And is that what you're working on right now? Is that your main focus right now, the next two years? Absolutely. And there is one thing, and that's proving that this is a viable technology so that um, politicians and, and other people accept it like, okay, it's there, it's proven, like solar panels are proven, like winters are proven, uh, direct air capture is now proven, so uh, we, can, we can adjust our plans. That's that's the main uh, the main goal, and of course we will need to scale up production. Uh, that will be a huge challenge, but it has been done for cars. So why could it not be done for direct air capture machines? Uh, it's a matter, of course, of uh, partnering with the right companies, the right people. So all of that is feasible, uh, one way or another. And this is not a concern. Uh, so our mission right now is to prove uh, as soon as possible that this is a viable technology, that you can build a device with that, that this device does not consume too much energy, uh, that it's not too costly to build. And once this is clear and proven, I think many things can change. Do you feel that you're close in that regard? Are there some major roadblocks at the moment or is it just a matter of time? There are still some roadblocks and there's still some uncertainties, uh, technical challenges that we don't know whether we're going to achieve that or not. Um, it's um, Somebody told me that if you want to uh, capture CO2 from air in a cost-effective way, you're going to have to look Mother Nature really deep into the ice. And, and he was right. Um, there are, of course, reasons why so far nobody found a viable way to capture CO2 from air. It's extremely hard to do. And uh, nature does not, uh, um, let's say, uh, when we work on this and you stumble into a problem, you think like, oh, why is this parameter not just, you know, a couple of digits more in this direction or more in this direction? Uh, but um, we still think it's feasible. We need, of course, to find uh, the right materials, uh, work on a couple of problems, but nothing that is not feasible. But it will be hard. It remains hard. It's technically challenging. Um, so yeah, it's a matter of it's a matter of time. I think it's a matter of time before we we find uh, the breakthrough that uh, that we need. Okay, interesting. And what do you think would constitute, what is proof in the eyes of the decision makers? What are they looking for to know that, yes, this is viable? I think they need a, a real outdoor working machine that they can come and see and touch and um, that, uh, we, we, um, that the manufacturing industry is saying, okay, it costs so much to produce 100 million of those and, uh, and this is the energy consumption, so they just need to be able to come see it and touch it. So we're going to build a couple of those, put it around the world, allow people to get familiar with the technology. And then, um, yeah, we hope um, the world will embrace it and, uh, and do the best with it. And, you know, along those lines, you've won, uh, you got an X prize recently, you've received some funding and that's uh, from Elon Musk and the Musk Foundation. 
Has that something that's hap- been happening organically? Did you go looking for this type of funding? How did you feel about those? We weren't really looking for this type of funding. Um, but of course, when we noticed Elon Musk uh, and the XPRIZE organization launched this challenge, uh, we very much felt um, that this was something that, uh, that we had to participate uh, in because it was exactly what we were doing. And um, it was actually fun doing it um, because it forced us to, um, yeah, to, I mean, they, for example, they asked us to describe how a 1 million ton per year plant would look like. Well, we had never done that exercise in that, in such great detail, uh, but it was nice doing it in, in that detail. We also learned a lot from it. And, um, and of course, we knew that if we would be one of the 15 uh, chosen uh, companies that we would get some exposure from it, which is, which is nice. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's actually a great motivation also for the second round eh, where you need to build uh, a system that can do 1000 ton of CO2 per year in 2024. It, uh, it's a stretch. Eh? It puts the whole organization, of course. Um, um, I mean, this timeline is, is really challenging. Uh, if, if there were not this challenge of 2024, I guess maybe eh, we would have been a little bit more relaxed about uh, doing a 1000 ton system. But now that this challenge is there and we need to do it by beginning 2024, you start adjusting your plans to uh, to speed up things, and um, that's what a competition does to you, right? That's why athletes compete because they have this world championship coming up, and they want to be prepared for it, and they have this target, and that's that's what they work towards. And having this challenge, like the world championship on direct air capture, is just a nice competition to be in, and it's motivating uh, a lot of people to um, yeah to do. That. An extra mile and and uh, and try to be ready and in good shape by by 2024. Yeah, that's great. And it seems like that sense of urgency, that is something to his credit that I believe that Elon Musk and the stuff he works on generally has. He's always had that sense of urgency. And I think when it comes to these types of things, having a little bit of fire lit under us is probably a good thing. We don't have all the time in the world to figure these things out. So that's very fascinating. I have no doubt that you can do it and that you will do it. I think it's very exciting. And I want to take this point to make it a little bit more personal now. Uh, at the very beginning, we talked about how you had a stable job. And people who don't live in Europe or the Netherlands, they don't understand exactly what that means. Because in the Netherlands, you can get what's called a permanent contract. You can have a job and you truly have that job for life. It is very, very difficult to fire somebody who has a permanent contract, very difficult to get rid of them. It's not like here in the United States where somebody can work for your company for 30 years and you say, okay, pack up your stuff and you're out of here in five minutes. We don't care what you did. So it means more, I believe, to leave the safe path in an environment like that, where, like you said, it truly was safe, safe for life. You could have retired, you could have followed down that path and you would have been totally fine. And it takes initiative and risk and guts to leave that, to do this. Now that you're on the other side, admitting that you jumped into it, not having all the facts, right? Not having all of the information that you needed. Now that you did that, 
How do you feel at this point in the process? Any regrets? Are you completely happy? How's your day to day? Are you full of more stress, more joy? I'm happier than ever. Um, once you cross, uh, you, you discover a new continent, so to say, uh, the continent of uh, entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so, um, um, I mean, of course there is stress, but there, there is also stress in, in, uh, in large corporates where you need to do uh, what uh, higher management is telling you to do and you need to meet your milestones there as well. So that also creates stress, but this is stress that you impose on yourself and that's something else. Uh, so uh, we're a startup company, we're 15 people. So we decide among ourselves, of course, the type of challenges that, that we want to get, engage on. Do we want to do the XPRIZE or do we not want to do the XPRIZE? It's only us uh, deciding on that. It's not anyone imposing that on us. And, um, and, and the freedom that you experience uh, to make your own decisions um, is, is actually great, a great thing to do. Um, it's it's uh, what I discovered uh, doing this now the past three years. I have no regrets whatsoever. I would do it again. Um, and probably I, I should have done it sooner, but okay. Um, uh, I've done it now. I started doing this three years and um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that this is exactly what I want to continue doing. There is no way I want to go back to a big corporate. <laughs> this is way and way too fun. Yeah, that's uh, you summed it up so nicely. And you touch on a point that I hadn't thought of before, but it does seem true that there are two types of stress. You talk about self-imposed versus external. And we know, especially in Europe, it's a topic that's been talked about a lot the last 10 years, the concept of burnout and this kind of external stress, this work-related stress that we know if you have too much of it, it's very, very negative. And I think anybody who's worked in a corporate environment or anybody who's worked in a traditional job knows that level of stress, especially if there's a lot being asked of them. But then there's this other stress, which is the performing on stage stress or the winning a competition stress or the beating your own milestone stress or those kind of self-imposed stresses that you talk about, which seems to me to be a good thing. It seems to me to be yeah. a positive thing because without any of the good stress, there's no joy. What's the point of waking up every morning if there's not something that's a little bit of excitement or something of a little bit of unknown? And maybe we haven't really categorize the types of stress very well as a culture yet and organize that it's not that stress is bad, but it's what kind of stress it is. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. I think uh, stress can give a lot of energy. Um, I mean, some stress can be bad, uh, like indeed uh, if it's um, imposed on you by uh, by a boss and you don't agree with him, uh, but you still have to do it because he's your boss and Okay, that's, that's kind of negative stress. It doesn't give you energy. Uh, but if it's self-imposed stress, uh, as you said, uh, participating to a competition, and, and that really gives energy. Uh, so uh, absolutely, there's different kinds of, of, of stress. And uh, the, the first kind of stress is indeed typically what leads to burnout. Um, the, 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 the stress that, that, that takes energy leads eventually to... Uh, to an empty battery and to a burnout. But um, the stress that I experienced doing carbine, for example, 
Um, I mean, it, it gives energy, right? And we have our problems. So there are challenges uh, on the technical side. There's challenges on, on financing things. And, and there's, of course, uh, days that you think like, okay, nothing worked today. Um, and, and yeah, you have, uh, of course, uh, fallbacks. But um, in a way, uh, it's not draining your, my energy level. And, and um, I think it's, it's something that everybody needs to really look for for, uh, for yourself. Uh, uh, to what extent that what you do on a day-to-day basis is actually draining energy or giving energy. And mm. um, you should, of course, avoid as much as you can anything that is draining energy, uh, mm. especially the, the mental energy then, of course. Um, and uh, because indeed, if there is too much drainage of mental energy, sooner or later you run into a burnout. There is no escape. And the fact that so many people experience that means that uh, there is something wrong with with work culture and and with how people how we force people to work. Um, one of the things, for example, that I maybe have. An, easy saying because okay i'm the ceo so i decide okay nobody decides what i have to do but then i also put myself in the shoes of the employees and i think like okay what do i i have to do as a boss so to speak to avoid that they run out of mental energy so i try also to give them a lot of freedom and I'm really ambitious in terms of our goals, of course. I say, yeah, I want to do that X prize. I want to run the machine in 2024. I want to do the 1,000 ton uh, per year. But I tell them, like, if we fail, I'm not going to blame you. Because I don't know if it's feasible. I'm not telling you to do it and I will blame you if we, if we can't. It's not going to be your fault. We just take a collective responsibility that we want to do it without knowing that we can do it. And if we fail, we're not going to blame one another. I'm not going to blame my people if we fail doing it. Because um, if they feel like uh, I make they, them responsible for, for the result and that I will blame them for not achieving the result, that's negative energy. That's draining mental energy. They need to know that even though I'm extremely ambitious, that I will never blame them for not achieving these ambitions. That's great. That sounds like a great work environment. Sounds like you're building something really cool. And again, your website says planet over profits, a simple phrase, but a powerful one. One that I wish more people adopted because what is the spirit of that? And it's also, I think, people over profits, your team, the well-being of if you have the choice of building this thing, why build it in a way that is negative? Why build it in a way that's not fun? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, I'm now um, 30, 35 years in, 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 in business, I mean, doing different jobs. And um, it also helps me now to, to know what to do and what not to do. Also in terms of making sure that people feel well. I've been working in big corporates. I know what goes wrong in these big corporates. I know what uh, type of, uh, let's say, uh, structures cause uh, mental damage or a drainage of mental energy. Um, so I've been there and, and, and that 
um, experience helps me now to try and avoid doing that in, in Caribbean. Of course, it's different in a startup. It's easier probably in a startup. And uh, we need to watch out that maybe even uh, 25 years from now, we are ourselves a big corporate, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> that we have not uh, in the, uh, worst ported, uh, the, yeah, the problems of big corporates. But for the time being, yeah, we try to, um, to respect these principles. So to make sure that everybody feels, feels good, uh, doesn't feel stressed in a negative way. And, uh, and plan it before profit. And also, we try to um, not just to have it as a slogan, but uh, to also um, change our legal structure so that uh, we can always make sure that um, the, the, the profits that we would generate will benefit the climate eh, and will not only benefit the shareholders. Shareholders, they need to get a fair compensation of course for the risk money which they provide so there is no question about that uh, but the thing is that it should be fair it should not be it should be in proportion and uh, I think we've seen the last 20-30 uh, years that in many cases the compensation for uh, let's say risk money was out of proportion uh, at the cost of uh, environmental problems, uh, uh, let's say so society had to pay eh, for the burnouts, for example, or, or things like that. So uh, shareholders have become uh, very rich, uh, but it has happened at the cost of uh, of society. And I think um, this 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 is what what planet before profit means. And we need to make sure that whatever we do as a company, as Carbion. Um, that we uh, do not, um, let's say, um, that we respect the balance between the compensation for shareholders and these other goals that we have as a, as, as a company. And we try to adjust our legal structure to that so that there is a kind of ethical committee that can actually overrule shareholder decisions if that balance would be broken. I think that's fabulous. And it's so important to do that because later, you can't do it later. You have to do it now. I think that's very wise. Uh, we have reached the end of our time here. I can't thank you enough for joining me, Hans. I think it's super cool what you're doing. I look forward to the next one and a half years, the next couple years of progress. I will be watching very closely. But again, like I said, I have no doubt that you and your team will be able to do it. Uh, I'm, I think it's fabulous that you've done that. So thank you very much on behalf of all of us humans on this planet for attempting to solve our problems. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, I'll hope we'll succeed. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for this nice talk. And uh, let's keep in touch. Uh, we definitely will. And of course, I can say, we can close it in Dutch. I can say, dankjewel and uh, how do I? Uh... <laughs>